All right. Why don't you turn to Matthew chapter 22, please? Matthew chapter 22, our Lord has um, just exposed the religious rulers and proclaimed judgment on the nation through two parables, the parable of the two sons and the parable of the wicked vineyard in chapter 21, verse 28 to 46. Jesus will give a third and final parable that we will begin to study with. Um, And then he's going to be attacked with a series of questions, always trying to entangle Jesus, always trying to discredit him. This is always the tactics also of the non-believer in the world towards the believer. Uh, Why is it that you believe we have to be saved? Why do you have to repent? Why do you believe that everything is evil? And you need to give them an answer to every man for the reason of the hope that lies in you with meekness and fear. In 1 Peter 3.15, you need to be a good Berean, study the word of God so you can give those answers to people. Very important. Because if not, they will entrap you. And you need to understand God's word. And so... Chapter 22, verse 1 through 14, we did in depth this morning. I would encourage you to get it if you weren't here. We'll go through general commentary. The parable of the wedding feast. Uh, There's a similar one in Luke 14, 16 through 24, but it's not the same one. If you compare them, there's too many distinctions between them. Some people parallel them. They're not parallel. It's a whole different account. So chapter 22, 1 through 7, we have the invitation of the nation of Israel And the rejection, the first seven verses, and the high privilege of the nation um, has been ignored um, by the nation as we've been following. Just rejecting Jesus, verse 1 through 3 is very clear on this. Uh, The context is animosity. Jesus answering and spoke to them again by parables, verse 1, and said. So Jesus is still addressing these individuals, them, back in chapter 21, the Pharisees and the priests. they just, um, they know that he's speaking against them. They're the Sanhedrin. He told them they weren't going to enter the kingdom of God. Harlots and prostitutes before them, tax collectors. It didn't rub them the right way. Upset them. Some people come to church. There's been times when I speak and people walk out. They think, who does he think tell us that we're going to hell? You are. If you're not born again, you're in your sin. Trespasses. Your sin separation from God. And only the blood of Jesus Christ can cleanse you from your sin. You ever get mad at your mirror when it tells you you have your shirt on wrong or your buttons on wrong or whatever? No, you correct it. Why do we get mad at truth? Because we want to hide in darkness. We hate the light. We love the darkness. The Bible is very clear. And so the response of religious rulers um, remains consistent. They, they, they hate Jesus. Um, they perceive that he um, was speaking about them. And so the parabolic teaching now is, uh, once again, to illuminate, to bring um, knowledge, understanding. It's a, it's, a, it's a second step out of love and compassion of Jesus to try to make these people think through the material so all of a sudden it may hit them right between the eyes. Again, parable, para alongside, bully to throw taking something from common life, putting it on one side, putting the thing that you don't know on the other side, and knowing what you do know, you'll know what you don't know. A sower went out to sow seed. Boom. And then he makes a spiritual application. That's what a parable is. Parables do one of two things, compare or contrast. 
they have a punchline. The punchline of this parable is verse 14. Not everything in the parable is to be interpreted unless it is evident in the text. We did that in Matthew 13 through the kingdom parables. Jesus gave all the specifics. Right here, we're able to interpret these because of the parallel that he's doing, salvation with the nation of Israel, the king being God, the son being the Lord Jesus Christ, and the servants are those who are preaching the gospel, very evident. It's not, making, uh, it's not confusing it or doing any violence to it. And so the parabolic form, Jesus is, um, is teaching because he loves um, the people. Now, the repeated phrase um, introducing the parable is the kingdom of heaven is likened to a certain king who arranged the marriage for his son. And we have many parables that begin like that. Again, it's a simile. We're beginning with the word like or as. And um, the kingdom of heaven indicates between the first and the second coming is God is coming to set up the kingdom. And he will, the millennial kingdom. And uh, the kingdom of God is much larger, includes eternity and everything else. And yet the church is not the kingdom of heaven nor the kingdom of God, but it is part of it. And the church will not establish the kingdom. Jesus will establish the kingdom. We'll be coming back with him. There's a big difference, and I make that point because today many churches and pastors teach that we're going to set up the kingdom. And the world's going to get better and better and better. Really? All right. I'll wait with you. I'll see what happens. And so, verse 3, the emissaries here, the servants are sent out. They sent out the servants and called those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. Underline that. This is the nation of Israel. They're not willing to come. They're not forced not willing to come. They are given the right to not come. God Respects your choice. Pharaoh's choice was respected. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Hardened his heart. Hardened his heart. And then it says God drew a line. He says now God hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Two different Hebrew words. Hardened means make stiff. God, when he hardens, he reinforces your rebelliousness and he respects your choice. If you're stubborn enough, you can go to hell. But you don't have to. You can go to heaven by the grace of God as you respond to the gospel. Very important. Um, the charge is legitimate. They have ignored and not taken the value of this invitation. They were um, not willing to come. The imperfect tense marks the element of the will. Again, God respects our will. The religious rulers and the nation of Israel uh, spurn the grace of God here. This is the gospel that Jesus is talking about, the age of grace. And every time someone hears the gospel, either their heart will be open, like the parable of the sower, or hard and fall by the wayside. But it is a choice that we make. God doesn't force us. Very important. Verse 4 through 7, the time of the high privilege of the nation regarding the wedding was present now. This is the whole thing. The kingdom of God has come. It's in the midst of you, Jesus says. John the Baptist opens Matthew with that, preaching that. And so in verse 4, the second group of, of servants are sent out. In order, um, and the wedding usually lasted about seven days. And here again, the patience of God to repeat the call of grace. Uh, how often 
Uh, I, I don't remember hearing the gospel. I remember working at Prano Market, and one of our friends that we went to school with, uh, Steve Cameron, he used to come in, and he was kind of a hippie before, get loaded and everything, and then he had me a track. He handed me a track one time. I threw it away. But that's really it. I never heard that I had to be saved or anything else. But when I heard the gospel, I repented. But many times people hear and hear and hear, and they harden, 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 and uh, sometimes they cross that line. I don't know where that is. Um, the servants are the ones preaching the gospel. The apostles, those who would follow. The um, urgency of the invitation is stated, saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared a dinner, my ox and my fattened calf are killed, and all the things are made ready. Come to the wedding. So once again, the persistent love of God presses in verse 4. They have been invited, and they told the preparations are ready. The time has come. There's no time to delay. No time. But how often people delay and procrastinate the things that are higher priority because other things take place. Um, all were responding to the high privilege as, as the people of God and the nation. Um, they should have been doing it positively, but they were responding negatively. God sent for the Son when the fullness of time had come. Galatians 4, 4, right on time. When Rome was in power, there was peace, there was Rose, there was a universal language, Greek, and they went all over the world right on time. Notice the insult towards God is in verse 5 for the invitation, but they made light of it and they went their way, some to a farm and others to business. They were careless. The word light is careless, neglectful. It's higher priority. Well, you know, when I get old, I go to church. You know, when I get in trouble, I call God. No priorities. Priorities are making money and being comfortable and, you know, laying out in the pool. No, there's nothing wrong with any of those things in and of themselves. But if that's what we live for and that's the only thing that embraces us. If I'm exercising myself physically more than I'm studying the Word of God, I am carnal, 100% beef. If my goal is to be rich or just to whatever it may be and it's not in the priority with God, then I am carnal. I add to my own hurt. It's just the way it is. My priority is going to dictate who I'm living for. Very, very important. And so, um, verse 6, the hateful rebellion against God is stated by the second group. And the rest seized the servants and treated them despitefully and killed them. Um, the leaders of the Jews and did this to the servants. Um, we see it through the book of Acts, um, insolent, shamefully. Even in the Old Testament, Israel had that history. Um, the response in verse 7 of God towards the nation is stated, but when the king heard about it, he was furious, and he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned their city. And so here again, Sometimes people fall God. Well, you know, the God of wrath in the Old Testament, the God of love in the New Testament. Even now, the emergent church, which I call submergent church, is saying that we don't have to read the Old Testament. We, 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 don't, want, we don't want to preach the Old Testament, the New Testament, in, in, on Sunday morning, anything. Really? Well, it's like having a house without a foundation. The Old Testament is the foundation of the New. It's progressive revelation of the New Testament, the fulfillment of everything in the Old. I believe they told me... Um, Charles Stanley's son now is saying that. Wow. The new postmodern 
progressive, crazy people. Wow. Like going to school, well, this really is happening in schools, you know, they don't teach you math, English, or anything. They just kind of just push you through, take you to the shrink, and tell you how good you are. Wow. Interesting. God's fury here is justified. The word means to be aroused in anger, but never confuse the anger of God with the anger of a human person. A person gets mad because of envy, jealousy, or whatever it may be, and their passion gets out of control, and the intent is to kill even beyond, or not just to get even. You know, you knock one of my teeth on, I want to get ten of yours. When God brings judgment, it's just. It's not vengeance. It's not because he lost control of himself. It's because that person has grieved, grieved, hardened, hardened, and crossed that line, and God lowers the boom. It's real simple. The grace and patience of God will not be insulted forever, and um, there's a line for every person in every nation. And um, his judgment is justified because of the high privilege here with Israel. And the point out of God's wrath is prophetic of the judgment to Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Uh, Titus um, came in and destroyed the city, the temple, and everything else, as you know. In verse 8 down through 10, you have the invitation of the Gentiles and their uh, acceptance now of the gospel because there's a transition going on. The privilege of the nation of Israel would be transferred to the Gentiles since they have hardened their heart. The proclaimed judgment. Um, in, in verse 8 there, the urgency of the wedding is stated. Then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready. The servants, again, the believers, the apostles of Jesus Christ, they're proclaiming the gospel. And then in, in the ongoing church age, it's every generation of Christians who preaches. The wedding uh, of the bride and Jesus will be at the rapture. When he removes the church from here, we will go before the beam of seat of Christ to be rewarded for the motive of our heart, why and how we did the things we did. And if it wasn't God's love, then we will have no reward. 1 Corinthians 4, 5. And then we will have the wedding in heaven. And then we will come back a thousand years for our honeymoon on earth. That's where the marriage supper of the Lamb is. So when you look at Matthew 25, just a sneak peek before we get there, that's the coming back to set up the kingdom. That's where the uh, marriage supper of thine will take place after the judgment of the nations, separating the sheep from the goats. And so the wedding is up in heaven, the supper down here during the millennial kingdom. And so um, the disdain and dishonor to this high privilege by the Jews marked by arrogance and insolence there in eight at the end, but those who were uh, invited were not worthy. This is a judgment from God. This is not a flippant thing that he's just saying and he doesn't know what he's talking about. You and I can make mistakes about a person or some decision, but God, when he says that is right, that is wrong, there is no mistake. He is absolutely all-wise, all-powerful, all-knowing. He has all the information. He doesn't need information. When we pray, we give him information. Listen, he doesn't need information. He needs for you to line yourself up with his will and say, Lord, I don't know what you have. I don't know what you're doing, but give me wisdom, direction, speak to my heart, strengthen me, let me honor you. Let me not fail this test. 
Hmm. Verse 9. The proclamation of the transition was ordered by the king here again. The geographical location is stated. Therefore, they went to the highways. And the highways here is those, uh, it's a present durative to keep on going till the whole um, wedding feast was filled. Um, the highways, the ways through which the outlets of the exit, where they come into the cities, and, of course, this would include the Gentile. That's what it's talking about here. Now, the Jew was not excluded, but it was no longer limited to the Jew. First the Jew, then the Gentile. First the Jew in terms of priority at time. Jesus was sent to the Jew. But Paul, at the end of the book of Acts, he shakes the dust off his feet, says, I give you up, I'm turning to the Gentiles. Because the Jew got harder and harder and harder. The church of Jesus Christ today is made up primarily of Gentiles. There are some Messianic Jews, but they're few. They're not great in number. Blindness and part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentile comes in, Paul says in Romans eleven twenty six. Very important. Now, the numerical stipulation is also stated. And as many as you find invite to the wedding, whoever... But the extensions to the Gentile, there's no exclusion of the Jew, but God understands the Jew will become more distant from the gospel. After that judgment over Jerusalem, it almost is, 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 there's hardly any Jews that come to Christ. Now, the word invite is kaleo, allowed an imperative command that you might be the bride of Christ, a chaste virgin to Christ. Cleansing you from all sin, making you worthy, as Second Corinthians 11, 2 says. And the command of the king is carried out in verse 10. The uh, servants obey. So the servants went out in the highways. They gathered together all those who were found. And um, again, these are the apostles and the succeeding generations in obedience to the Great Commission. The quality of people, notice, would be sinners of every kind and degree both bad and good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. Bad, poneros, it means wicked, with the idea of being corrupt in nature and delighting in making others. This is the word that is used for Satan in 1 John five nineteen. Good, agathos, good in constitution and nature, excellent, useful, salutary, yet still sinners. Paraphrase it. Good moral pagan. But you're still a sinner. You still need redemption. You look to the church of Jesus Christ. There's such a category of people. Some people were in some debauched sin. That you can't even imagine. And God has made them whiter than snow. And there's some good moral pagans. Who didn't think they needed salvation. And then they heard the gospel. And they realized their righteousness was as filthy rag. And they repented. Both of those individuals were made whiter than snow. It isn't more difficult for God if you committed certain sins from another one. He's the only one. Only the blood of Jesus Christ can cleanse you from sin and me. Nothing else. You cannot work for it. You cannot undo it. You cannot go back. All the tears will do nothing. All the thinking about it is only adding to your hurt. You need to go forward. When you drive out of here and you go home, you're going to get in your car and you're going to drive home looking forward. And you're going to drive down that freeway looking forward and you'll be straight. If you try to drive looking backwards, you won't even get out of the parking lot. 
This is what people do in their life in Christ when they don't believe that Christ has cleansed them. They drive and run looking backwards. You can't do that, ladies and gentlemen. You must believe what God says for you and everyone else. Very, very important. 11 through 14, the invitation had a required standard, as we said this morning, to be honored. In 11 and 12, the examination of the guest by the king comes now uh, to the revelation of the king as he's entering the banquet hall. Uh, he's shocked. When the king came in, he saw guests. And so uh, uh, he's just walking in, not with a critical eye, but just looking. And his eye is caught by this guy. And he's reclining back, and he doesn't have his, his wedding garment on. The implication is he was given one. He, he knew he needed it. He didn't use it. The king observes this horrible sight. It's wrong. He saw the man there who didn't have this wedding garment in verse 11, and the king was shocked. The confrontation by the king also in 12 there as he approached the man. So he said to him, friend, and it's not in a friend. He says, friend, the very attitude, the facial expression, the tone tells you I'm in trouble. And he knew it. The king questions the man. How, do, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? Verse 12 at the end there. The question is revealing the presumptuousness of this man. A garment had been given to him, which is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The only way you can be justified, the only way you can be cleansed, the only way you can be saved. No one can wear a garment. No one can bring their own garment. Even the most sexually pure and moral girl or guy that gets married, that white dress demonstrates their faithfulness to their own virtue. But regarding Jesus Christ, that isn't going to save them. Now, thank God they're pure. They reap the benefits as they get married and go forward. Okay? But that tent can't save them. It's the blood of Jesus Christ. Very important. And we have to keep that very, very clear. And so the central theme of the parable is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Um, Isaiah 61.10, Revelation 1.7-9, through 9, Romans 5.1-2. and 2, We are justified in Christ Jesus. His righteousness... Our righteousness is as filthy rags, Isaiah 64, uh, 6. A menstrual garment is the word. There's only one, and I don't call it a Bible, but the Jehovah Witness uh, book translates it literally what it should be, menstrual garment. So that you and I understand that if you try to get into heaven with that, you're never going to get in. There is no way. It's very, very vivid. And so the man was standing in his own righteousness, insufficient. Verse 12, at the end of the man could say nothing. And he was speechless. It means to close the mouth, to be muzzled. The passive tense means he was made speechless. He was reduced to silence because he had no excuse. He had been invited he had been given the garment, and he didn't depend on it. It's not God's fault. It's his own fault. 
13 through 14, the expulsion of the guests by the command of the king, the command, um, the condemnation of the man is proclaimed by the king in 13. The procedures described very clearly and vividly. Then the king said to them, bind that man hand and foot, literally having bound his feet and hands. He's a lawbreaker. He's a rebel. He's insulting God. The census declared authoritatively, take him away. Supreme authority, imperative command. The king is God in the parable. The locations described and cast him into utter darkness. The condition location of utter darkness is the region wherever it may be that there is no light at all. The absence of light completely. Separation from God for all eternity. The parable speaks of that location where all that is present is evil and corrupt. And you know, the lake of fire, Gehenna, was never made for anybody but Satan and his angels, Matthew 25, 41 says. And yet countless of people will spend eternity there because they don't believe in hell, because they think it's not fair of God, and because they don't believe they're evil. That's why they'll go there. Wow. Verse 13, the affliction is depicted unimaginably. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The condition of a person weeping means uh, wailing, lamenting, indicating pain and suffering, as we said this morning. Gnashing of teeth, the tightening down of your teeth, biting down, uh, demonstrating anguish and utter despair. Darkness, the worm never dies. Fires never quench. How can you have utter darkness with fire? Interesting. It's repeated phrase in Mark and Luke and other passages. Um, the proclamation in verse 14 is the punchline of the parable. Salvation is for all sinners indicated by the quality, um, <clears throat> I'm sorry, the quantity and the totality. It says, for many are called. Underline that. God gave his only son to be the propitiation for our sins. Not ours alone, but the whole world. John 3, 16 and 1 John 2, 2. He died for all. If you're a Calvinist, you believe that he died only for the chosen frozen. Only for a set few. You're unbiblical. You're wrong. He died for the whole world. And if you're wrong there, then you're wrong with your extended theology, wherever that might be. So you have to be careful. Jesus desires for all Israel to be saved, but he didn't force them, and therefore they crossed that line where God now put the nation aside, declared judgment over her, and now he's choosing the bride for himself, as Peter and James and Paul declared in the first church council in Acts 15. And then he will return and rebuild the tabernacle of David. God is not through with Israel. He will deal with Israel once again. The wife has been put away by divorce for her unfaithfulness, and the church is the bride of Christ, a virgin. There's a distinction between a wife who's been married and divorced, put away, and a young woman who's a virgin looking for a wedding. Don't confuse them. And so, salvation is uh, obtained by the few, few chosen. The few chosen salvation is because 
because those few depend on the righteousness of Jesus Christ to be justified. Not their own merits, not their own works. Remember, Israel was unwilling to come. They made light of it. They were unworthy. Verse 3, 5, 7, 8, 11, and 12. Now, if it isn't God's fault, whose is it? It's the individual person or the individual nation. Real simple. And so, the word chosen means God knows who will choose, who will receive, who will embrace, who will believe, and who won't. It's just real simple. It's not God's fault. It's every person who gives ear. Remember, Jesus says, take heed what you hear and how you hear. Two very important things. What are you listening to? And how are you listening? How are you hearing? Verse 15 to 22, now you have the Pharisees. They ask about taxes. Here comes all the attacks now. Try to trap him. Um, the parallel passages, Mark 12, 13 through 17, and Luke um, 20, verse 20 through 26. In verse 15, the evil motive of the Pharisees is given. Then the Pharisees went and they plotted again how they might entangle him in his talk. And the word then indicates after the parables, the Pharisees here were the ritualists, the ceremonialists, synonymous with hypocrisy. There were um, never more than 6,000 at one time um, in Israel. And their intent is given to plot how they might entangle Jesus uh, in his talk. Uh, the word plot there means to gather, to consult against Jesus. And entangle simply means, it's a hunting term, uh, to set a snare or a trap. Like a little box and you lift it up, put a stick and a string and pew, that's what it is. Just like that. In 16, the joining of the forces against Jesus are revealed. The religious, um, religionists here uh, are one group and the politicians. And they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians. The disciples of the Pharisees were the ritualists. The Herodians were the political party, followers of Herod as king. And um, they had secured provisions and positions and protections and favor. Um, political parties. The two groups were enemies, but their common oneness was that they hated Jesus. It is interesting how, how enemies can become common friends because they both hate the right person. But after they eliminate that person, then they'll go at each other. Listen, when rats multiply, rats eat rats. Okay? Keep that in mind. As you look to the political arena of the United States and what's happening, okay? They will devour one another. The flattering words were hypocritical. Um, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God and truth, nor do you care about anyone for you do not regard a person or the person of man true teacher you teach perfect the word of god flatteries you're not a respecter of person now all of this was true but they were doing it in mockery 
They didn't believe it. Proverbs 27, 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of the enemy are deceitful. When someone loves you and they care about you, they're going to tell you they're going to be a straight shooter. They're going to say, quit being such a jerk. Straighten up. You're wrong. But if they have something to gain from you, then they're going to flatter you. They're going to tell you how great you are. If the people you hang out with constantly tell you how great you are, go get some real friends. Get away from them. Verse 17, the question is to entrap Jesus. Here, the two groups asked his opinion on taxes. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? <laughs> Sometimes people come up to me and, and they say, hey, what do you think about this text? And I tell them, oh, no. And right away, I know they're not here to learn. They want to argue. Two type of questions, those that are really seeking answers and those that just want to argue. Here they're trapping Jesus. Then the question became very specific in an attempt to incriminate Jesus. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? <laughs> if Jesus said yes, the Jews would turn on Jesus because the Jews thought it was blasphemous to pay taxes to the Roman government. If Jesus said no, they could accuse him to Rome. Taxes were outrageous like they are in our day. Jerry Brown what a joke. What a thief. The ground tax, one-tenth of grain in that day. There was a fifth, one-fifth tax on oil and wine. There was an income tax of 1%. There was a poll tax, males 14 to 65 and females 12 to 65 and so many other ones. If you went across a bridge, then the bridge tax. And if your, if your cart had two axles, three axles, whatever it was, just on and on. Um, we here in California, California is a blue state. It lacks oxygen. Um, um, Governor Brown now wants to tax the rainwater that falls on your property. It'll be in the, in the new ballot in two days. I hope you vote against it. All right? People are crazy. Every time you get tired, there's $2.50 that goes to the environment to recycle them. All these green people, the only thing green on them is their teeth. It's all about money. It's about breaking you. Solar. They're going to push solar so far that they're going to put the electric uh, company out of business. They're going to have more solar power, but who provides it? It's the electric company. If you're not paying electric, how can they be in business? And when they put those solars on your roof, they're penetrating your roof. If you have a tile roof, you just ruin a $50,000 roof. They can put the tar. It'll be good for a year or two, but it's going to expand and contract, and you're going to have damage, and then you have to replace the whole thing. It's amazing. And they laugh all the way to the bank. Politicians. Hugsters. 
these guys here are too much. Now, the two groups were exposed for their evil intent. Look at verse 18. Jesus knew their hearts, but Jesus perceived their wickedness. Luke says craftiness in Luke 20, 23. Jesus knew what was in man in John 2, 25. He doesn't have to anybody tell him. He reads your heart. He reads your mind. He knows exactly what's going on. Jesus unmasked them. And he said, why do you test me, you hypocrites? The word hypocrite, we get the word actor from it, from the theater, the smile and the frown, the two masks. An actor. Verse 19 through 22, the response of Jesus. Jesus requested a coin. Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius. Pennies. Jesus did not even possess a coin at the time. The son of God who created everything. Didn't have a coin. He was buried in a borrowed grave, but it was okay. It was just for the weekend. Amazing. Jesus turns the tables on them, asking, whose image and inscription is this? <laughs> they think they've got him. They're going to be trapped by their own question as Jesus turns it on them. They said to him, Caesars, and I'm sure real smug. And he said to them, render, therefore, to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar and to God, the things that are God. Oh, it just got deflated. Darn it. The authorities are ordained of God for order and for good and the good of man as God's ministers against evil. So man is to pay both respect and taxes due. Romans 13, 1 through 7. 1 Peter 2, 13 and 14. Now I just complain to you about the taxes. Because they're unfair. But do I pay them? Absolutely. What choice do I have? I can get out of the United States. I can go move somewhere else. That's my choice. But I'm to pay the taxes the respect and all of that. The only time I am able to rebel against government is when government tells me I cannot preach the gospel or worship my God. And that I will do. Until then, they want 95% of my check. I have to give it to them. Now, fortunately, we live in a country that we're able to have political process so we're a better advantage than other countries dictatorship you don't complain or you will not live to be to see the next day socialism marxism you're not going to do anything and this is where the liberal left is going to socialism and marxism the media the universities are the cheerleaders for this and so, if you're young, think down the road. You better thank God for America. God's grace has been shed on thee. Absolutely. So, as you pay taxes, then give that which belongs to God. There is no conflict at all. And so, 
God, um, some people say, well, sometimes they ask me, people say, well, um, should I tithe, do I, am I supposed to tithe net or gross? I said, you go to God. People ask me about tithe, you know what, I said, you go to God with that. We don't talk about money here. It's up to you. God knows your heart. God takes care of it. But just stop and think about it. When I was in the world, every Friday and Saturday and even Sunday, I'm out party. Okay? I'm buying beer. I'm buying smokes. I'm buying all kinds of other stuff. Okay? I'm driving crazy. I crash my car. I get in fights. I'm putting on all kinds of money every weekend. Let alone, let alone Monday to Friday. When I came to Christ, I was probably 30 to 40% ahead financially the very first weekend. I saved a lot of money. Now, am I going to pinch a penny so hard that Lincoln's eyeballs pop out? My Lord. You should be so financially hit automatically when you become a Christian. You're not spending your money foolishly. You're not um, uh, spending emotionally, just buying what you want, trying to impress people. You're going to be so far ahead. God uses his people. We trust God for it in the past 37, almost 40 years. God's taking care of us. That's between you and God. We don't talk about money. We talk about God. But here, the text is here. Give to Caesar what Caesar. Give to God what belongs to God. No problem. Some people say, well, I, I think we should just go back to the Old Testament. And really? You add up the Old Testament, it's about 27, 29%. With the grain and the offering and every seven years and everything else. They go, oh, okay. Listen, God looks at our heart, okay? God, God, you don't impress God with how much money you give. You, you think that you give some money and God goes, oh, Gabriel, come here. Look at this dude. <laughs> he looks at the heart. Do I give because I love the Lord? Now, if you make $500 a month, and you're getting by. You pay your bills first. You be a good example to the, to the world and those around you. And as God bless you then if you want to give to God. But you have your priorities right first. You take care of your family and everything, okay? But don't use that as an excuse not to give to God what belongs to God. And you go to God. You... God is no debtor to any of us, ladies and gentlemen. Not at all. He owns a cattle on every hill. He paves heaven with gold. <laughs> What's your bedroom paved with? He, he's, he, God, God, God doesn't beg. He doesn't. He doesn't need it. Notice the response is stated. When they had heard these words, they marveled and they left him and went their way. What else can you do? They're disarmed completely. 23 to 33, the Sadducees now ask about the resurrection. The parallel passages, Mark 12, 18 through 27, Luke 20, 27 through 40. 
In 23 to 24, the attempt of the Sadducees to entrap Jesus once again now. The priests of the temple, uh, the same day, and the Sadducees who uh, say there is no resurrection came to him and asked him, well, now, if you don't believe in it, why are you asking that? That's pretty lame in itself, isn't it? But again, they're trying to trap him. The Sadducees were the materialists, the aristocrats, the wealthy. Yet they didn't believe in the resurrection and angels or spirits, Acts 23, 8 says. Can you believe that? Now, the, the Sadducees are, are, are part of the Sanhedrin with the Pharisees. The Pharisees are the religious, the ritualists. They believe in all of these. These guys don't, and yet they're in the same Supreme Court, if you will. <laughs> Pretty crazy, huh? They only believe in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And so the question pertaining to the law of leveret marriage is in verse 24. Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and rise up, uh, raise offspring for his brother. Uh, that's an ugly thought sometimes, but um, they had that. And um, if a man dies without having any children then he couldn't carry on his name. So the brother would marry that wife and the first child would bear the dead brother's name. Deuteronomy 25 verse 5 says that. Can you think of a book where that was exercised? It's in Genesis and also the book of Ruth. Tamar and then Ruth. Now the first son would again bear the name of the dead brother. Now, verse 25 through 28, the hip hypothesis here um, is presented, the hypothetical scenario. The particular case is, now, there were with uh, us seven brothers. The first died after he had married, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. Likewise, the second, also the third, even the seventh. All seven took her as wife without having children. Now, what are the chance factor of this happening? Nil. They don't believe in the resurrection. They're trying to trap Jesus. They're setting this lame case scenario up. The inevitable is stated in 27. Last of all, the woman died also. My question after the second is, check the coffee. Get away from that woman. Something is wrong. In verse 28, the question to entrap Jesus, hypothetically, like the one of the Pharisees and the Herodians that was presented, it says, therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. Well, I think probably all seven are going to run away. Listen, they didn't believe in the resurrection. And yet they're asking this question. They believe that somehow if there is a resurrection, that's going to be a problem. The response of Jesus was a rebuke to their hypocritical ignorance. Look at 29. Jesus pointed out there. Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken. 
not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. Not knowing the scriptures, they only believe in the first five books. And they believe that there wasn't no evidence of resurrection. That really, we're going to see them. That's all. And not knowing the power of God. God speaks of the resurrection in the five books as well as the other books. And the power of God is the one that raises the, the, the dead body. Not man. And so in 30, Jesus revealed the nature of the resurrection regarding marriage. Because that's a connection. Resurrection and marriage, right? That's the case. So he says, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels of God in heaven. In other words, in the resurrection we will not be married. Angels aren't married because angels don't need to reproduce. God created them as spirit beings. And they are eternal. They don't grow old and die. We do because we're fallen. Now, we will be like the angels, spirit beings in glorified bodies. We will know our wife, our husband, our friends better than we know them here. People often say, well, I know my wife. Well, do you know her here? Yeah, well, you'll know her better there. And it's going to be better over there. Now, marriage is great here. I wouldn't be anything else but married. But it's going to be better over there. How can I? You'll know when you get there. Okay. Now, it is interesting that angels only appear in the male form in the scriptures. There's no female. Now, in the occult, they do have succubus, which they declare female angels, okay? And they're usually sexually oriented, okay? But the Bible doesn't teach that. Only male. Every time angels appear, they are male. You never read of the angel Gabriella. Okay? Or Michelle. It's Gabriel and Michael. All right? Now, they had made a big mistake, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. This is still the mistake of many Christians. Christians that go to church, Christians that read their Bible, Christians that supposedly study, they don't know the scriptures nor the power of God. Happens all the time. Jesus reveals those who die physically are alive just in a different form. He says in 31 and 32, But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what is spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. He's quoting the Pentateuch. Exodus 3, 6. There you go. Sadducees. <laughs> the Sadducees uh, didn't see this clearly. They thought they had him. Our bodies will go to the grave, ladies and gentlemen, whether they bury you or whether you are cremated. Cremation will do in 30 minutes what the earth will do in 30 years. Nothing is prohibited about cremation. The traditional burial is burial, okay? But what happens if a person who's a Christian is in a fire and they burn in the fire? Does that mean that those people who are cremated in the fire, they're not raised? Of course not. 
the guy who's out there in the sea and Jaws gets the left leg and his cousin gets the right leg and the rest just floats around for a while. Is that going to be a problem for God to raise your body? Nope. How about when they put you in the grave and they bury you by out there and wherever and all of a sudden somebody comes 100 years later or so or 50 years or 10 years and they plant an apple tree and the apple tree it grows and then the roots go down to your coffin and it becomes part of the tree and someone comes by, grabs the apple, eats the apple and now becomes part of them. Is that a problem for God to put your body back together? No. These are all stupid questions that have correct answers. <laughs> the answer is nothing is impossible for God. Simple. Jesus impressed the crowd, and when the multitude heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. It means that to expel by a blow, driven out, shocked at his teaching. <laughs> 34 through 40, the Pharisees and Sadducees joined forces to ask about what the greatest commandment. Mark 12, 28 through 34, Luke 10, 25 through 28, the parallel passages. The persistent animosity towards Jesus continues. In 34, the reaction of the Pharisees. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Pharisees, but the sharp contrast between the amazement of the crowds and the Sadducees over the answer about marriage and the resurrection, the Pharisees heard now that Jesus has silenced them, yet they're in opposition, but now they, 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 they come again. The action of the Pharisees, they gathered together at this time, being opposed to each other in beliefs they found that common ground because of their hatred towards Jesus they gather simply to keep attacking Jesus on every level 35 through 36 the representative of the two parties questions Jesus the motive bearing the question or behind the question is stated listen then one of them a lawyer asked him a question testing him and saying lawyer Namikos, namos law, ikos, anytime a Greek word ends in an ikos, it means that which is controlled or governed by. A lawyer is governed by law, okay? He's under that power. Mark calls him a scribe, one who transcribes and interprets and teaches the scriptures. There were 613 precepts, 248 commandments, and 365 prohibitions in the oral law, such as the Mishnah and the others. Ten Commandments. They had made all these commandments out of them. Amazing. The question regarded the commandment. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? He approaches Jesus with respect, calling him teacher. He asks him, which is the greatest commandment? The response of Jesus comes in 37 through 40. Jesus answered by quoting the Shema of Israel. Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. Verse 37, he's quoting Deuteronomy 6, 5. But there it says heart, soul, and strength or might. No problem. They indicate the same thing. Jesus was referring to the whole of man's being to um, love God entirely. Agapao here. All your heart, cardia, it refers to the center of all physical life, your literal heart, and spiritual life. Who you are in character. Who is the real person in you. All your soul, suki, refers to the seat of desires, the intellect, the emotion, the will, 
the spiritual faculty. If you're not born again, you're not walking in the spirit, your flesh, your sin nature will rule your spirit, soul, and body. Your emotions, your intellect. If you are governed by the Spirit of God, you will reckon the old man dead. Your body will be an instrument of God. You will be under submission to the power of the Spirit of God. All your mind, dianoia, referring to the faculty of understanding, the thinking processes. Jesus qualifies the commandment. This is the first and greatest commandment, verse 38. First is protos, first in rank, preeminence, influence, the vertical first. I love God first. I am right with God first, the vertical. This is the great, megas, the most important, the weightiest one, the source of all life. And Jesus declares the second greatest commandment, and the second liken unto you shall love your neighbor as yourself, verse 39, again, agapao, Quoting Leviticus 19.18. The second is like the first, as important. It's the outcome of the first. The vertical will affect the horizontal. If I'm right with God, my relationships on the horizontal will be right. If I'm not right with God, these things will get all jacked up. Any attempt to fix them without the vertical will not work. They will not work, ladies and gentlemen. You've got to get right with God first. Then you'll humble yourself and get right with others. Jesus declared the great importance of these two commandments. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Wow. Paul affirms this in Romans 13, 10. 41 to 46, the question that Jesus asked the Pharisees now. The parallel passage in Mark 12, 35 through 37 and Luke 12, 20. 41 through 44. Look at 41 through 42, the first part of the question about Christ. Jesus addresses all the Pharisees present. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, those who heard the answer to the greatest commandment, the lawyer who was present, and Jesus asked, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? The Sadducees and Pharisees had failed to entrap Jesus. Now Jesus is going to turn it on them. And Jesus was answering uh, promptly. They answered Jesus promptly. They said to him, the son of David, almost probably very proudly, and uh, probably made her looking around smugly, and without any idea, Jesus was setting them up. What they tried to do, he did masterfully. 43 to 46, the second part of the question about Christ. Jesus asked them about the seeming contradiction words of David. He said to them, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord? No father would call his son Lord. Jesus was revealing that David, by calling Christ Lord, indicated he was more than David's son. Notice Jesus believed the inspiration of scripture in the spirit David spoke. Inerrant, infallible. Jesus gives the interpretation of the psalm he is quoting. In verse 44, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool. Yahweh or Jehovah, either way you want, said to my Adonai. Let me translate it. The Father said to the Son, Jesus is the Son of God. Psalm 110 verse 1. It's a conversation between the Father and the Son. 
Jesus being God became the son and David by uh, through the line of David in the incarnation. John 1, 1, 1, 14. The position of authority is the right hand. Notice where Jesus will sit and is sitting, but he will sit forever on his throne later. And so the Psalm 110, the most quoted in the New Testament, Hebrews 113, Revelation 19, he returns back as King of King and Lord of Lords. In 45, Jesus revealed their ignorance of the scriptures. If David then called him Lord, how is he his son? They're stumped. Christ cannot be his son, but in fact was his Messiah and Lord through the line of David. And Jesus silences all his opponents, and no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. The Catch-22 chapter is over. The end of the attacks. Next chapter, he goes, he gets all over them. 24, he pronounces judgment over Jerusalem. Wow. Lord, we worship you. We thank you for your love and grace. Deal with our hearts and we thank you for your goodness, Lord. We pray that you continue to instruct us. We thank you for your word and, Father, for your grace over our life. Thank you for every person that's here. Father, just direct and guide them. Lord, as husbands and wives, as parents, as children, as grandparents, all of that, Lord, the different roles we play, that we may honor you in all things. As you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. Maybe you're over the Internet. If you believe Jesus Christ is God who became man, died for your sins and rose from the dead and sits at the right hand of the Father, then you can be saved by calling upon his name that he would forgive you of your sins, recognizing that he became literal sin for you who knew no sin, that you might become the righteousness of God in him. It's called repentance. A simple prayer will do that. If this is your desire, this is your prayer to him, and he's going to save you right now. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.